and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm your host, Flavia Munn, editor of Nursing Standard, and today we have a special episode in store marking the bicentenary of Florence Nightingale's birth. Now, you'll probably also be aware that it's also the WHO International Year of the Nurse and Midwife. So I'm here with Richard Hatchett, senior nurse editor, and he has been speaking to Anne-Marie Rafferty, who is RCM president and professor of nursing policy. Now, Professor Rafferty has written and critiqued the contribution of Florence Nightingale over the years. So hello, Richard. Hi, Flavia. Good to be here again. Good to have you. So can you tell me a little bit more about what we can get out of this podcast episode? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, everybody's aware that Florence Nightingale is a, uh, to some, a controversial character, to others she's a heroine, etc. So what I really wanted to get out of this podcast was a good critique of who this woman really was and to allow people to make up their own minds. So certainly we're not aiming to um, present her as a one-dimensional saint for nursing, so to speak, Mm -hmm. but to allow people to have an exploration of who the woman was, what her passions were, what her contributions is to nursing, particularly in 2020. So I'm hoping people will get a lot out of it and draw their own conclusions. That's the aim. Lovely. Well, let's take a listen to the interview. Well, welcome, everybody. Here I am discussing Florence Nightingale with Professor Anne-Marie Rafferty. And of course, it's 200 years. We're commemorating 200 years since the birth of Florence Nightingale. And that links to the International Year of the Nurse. And I can't think of anybody better to talk to about Florence Nightingale than Anne-Marie. She's currently president of the Royal College of Nursing and Professor of Nursing Policy and former Dean of the Florence Nightingale Faculty of Nursing and Midwifery at King's College in London, and also the co-editor with Siobhan Nelson of Notes on Nightingale, The Influence and Legacy of a Nursing Icon. So welcome, Emery. Thank you very much, Richard. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. I suppose the other thing to say is um, of interest to people is we're about 10 or 15 minutes walk from where Nightingale lived and died on South Street in Mayfair. So we're on set as well, aren't we? Oh, I'd love that idea. How very dramatic, darling. It's, it's true, it's true, isn't it? We should go and, in fact, our house has gone. They knocked it down in the 20s, so they built this, I won't say awful house, but something not quite as nice. But there is a plaque. We could go and huddle at the plaque. But can I um, just say something yeah, in that sure. regard, which links to the book? One of the uh, best chapters in that book, in my view, my humble view, is the, the, the chapter by Siobhan Nelson herself on the bricks from the house, oh, because really? when the house was demolished, the, the, the bricks were actually taken out and they were sent all over the world. They were sold uh, as part of a kind of charitable uh, endeavour. And mm. so I actually was speaking to someone in Beijing who knew... Owns a brick. <laughs> yeah, actually knows of the whereabouts of one of the, one of the bricks mm. in, in their school of nursing. So it's extraordinary the way that... You know, the material mm, culture mm, mm. of Nightingale has actually, you know, flown and literally been fed through different parts of uh, mm. the world. But that, that actually leads on quite nicely to this iconic image, doesn't it? And it is this, she's so enshrined in popular culture. She, I think she was the, well, I know she was, the first woman on a British banknote, only one of three. I mean, and she was the first. And, and so immediately when people are thinking of her, they think of the lady with the lamp and the long dress and, and an eagle and all, you know, she's so um, 
uh, part of popular culture that you almost forget the woman behind the the um, the image. Mm. Can you give us an idea of of uh, what sort of person she was, her background, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, she was born to a well-to-do, a wealthy family. Actually, I mean, she came from a very privileged background. Her father was a Liberal MP. Um, there was money in the family through their industrial uh, and mercantile in, in endeavours. So, in essence, she was from an upper middle class family. And uh, she was very well educated, uh, mainly by her father, but she had top-up tutoring, especially in, uh, in statistics and mathematics. I mean, she had those wide-ranging interests uh, we could call them polymathic, uh, or that was quite typical of Victorians, I suppose, uh, to, to, to frame and see her in, in, in that regard, both in terms of language and in terms of uh, numbers, you know. So, I mean, she spoke five languages, and uh, she <clears throat> was obviously very fluent in uh, quantities of skills, uh, schooled in, in statistics, as I said, and in mathematics. And she wrote beautifully. I mean, anyone who just picks up a copy of Notes and Nursing will be, I think, is captivated by the poetic uh, flow of her prose and its aesthetic quality, as well as uh, the content of what she's actually saying. And the two things work together, I think, very, very powerfully. So, and she was a woman of prodigious gifts and she used those to tremendous effect and uh, you know I mean obviously the Nightingale households plural there were three of them uh, there was a house in Derbyshire uh, at Leehurst there was a house in Hampshire Embley Park and of course she had her own place in South Street as you've just indicated um, so shuttling between those those three uh, domestic en environments, I mean, she was able to enjoy uh, quite a, a thorough, uh, I would say, traffic um, of the political intellectual aristocracy of the day coming through the Nightingale drawing room and dining room. So, I mean, they, the great and the good visited the Nightingales. You know, everyone from Charles Darwin to Charles Babbage, gosh, Mrs. Gaskell. So lit, and she was very friendly with Harriet Martineau. I mean, incredibly well connected and networked family. As I mentioned, her, her father was an MP. So very, I think, embedded in the um, the politics of the day as well. And I mean, not coincidentally, and this is quite important, I think, just the sheer physical geography of Embley Park in particular, you know, a stone's throw carriage ride down, down the road. There was Sidney Herbert, who mm. was Secretary of War, who had become super influential in Nightingale's life, of course, the person who who asked her to take the party out to the Crimea. And Lord Palmerston, who would become Prime Minister, was also in uh, the hood, as it were, the neighbourhood. So, you know, I mean, the, this world that she moved in was uh, a rather uh, 
elevated world uh, of the great and the good of the day. So she was very familiar with, uh, if you like, the, the, the elite and mm. very much part and parcel of that. And that gave her a tremendous sense, I think, of entitlement. Um, even though she was a woman, I don't think that made a jot of difference to her. I don't think she had an ego problem, not that she, I'm suggesting she was uh, an egoist. I, I, I don't think she was. But I think that that sense of, you know, can-do-ness and um, capacity to project yourself into situations of, of power and being comfortable with exercising power, I think that came quite easily to her. Mm. I mean, what do you think was her contribution to nursing? I mean, we could talk all day, I'm sure, of that, but kind of a little, perhaps in a nutshell. Um, what do you think was her contribution to nursing in her own time that may resonate to today's nursing? And I know this is uh, the basis of the chapter um, uh, with uh, Dr. Rosemary Wall, but it's an interesting question, isn't it, relevance to today. So what was her contribution to nursing in her own time that perhaps overarches into 2020? Well, I just think it's important to remember that actually mm -hmm. nursing was only a small part of her life and her activity, mm -hmm. relatively speaking, um, I suppose if I was looking at where it sat, I, w I would say it was at the intersection of many other interests, and one of which, um, you know, was of course hygiene and public health. I mean, this was the time when there <clears throat> was great concern about the health, particularly of, of, the, of the poor. She was very friendly with Edwin Chadwick, um, William Farr, who was the... Uh, the um, Registrar General and, of course, the custodian of vital statistics. I mean, that was the time mm. when, in 1851, uh, they were beginning to quantify what the demographic characteristics were of the, of, of the British population. So, and the government department beginning to actually analyse analyze that. So her connections with a crossover world that um, featured what we would now call epidemiology and social science because she was a member of uh, the, the Epidemiological Society and the Asso National Association of Social Science. Um, and these were all reform bodies. They were all producing evidence for reform. And I think if we bear that kind of principle in mind, that helps us to understand where Nightingale was at. Of course, she brings in as well the the whole kind of military enterprise because that was a huge focus for her. Really, army reform was, um, I would say, you know, probably the dominant kind of impulse that was driving her, although she got into all of that. You know, the bridgehead was actually through nursing. And I think... One of the things that really made her tick was that she wanted to do, because let's face it, you know, with, with her gifts, she could have done anything. Um, and she knew Elizabeth Blackwell, who was one of the first women to train as a doctor. You might say she could have trained as a, as a, as a doctor. But I, I think she saw nursing as something that was essentially very practical and where you could make a tangible difference to, to patients and and their loved ones. And, of course, she had been out to Kaiser Wert 
on her travels. She was a great traveller and this of course fed into her and that was natural for women, you know, um, the grand tour for, for those who were coming into society uh, was very much uh, a kind of part of the ritual of uh, socialisation in, in, into um, becoming an eligible marriage partner. But of course that was something that she also rebelled against. She had this really strong rebellious streak uh, that I've we also, we've also written about in that particular chapter and I've written it, about it also in uh, another, another book, The Politics of, of Nursing Knowledge, which goes into some of this in, in greater depth. Um, so the, several strands, I think, to do with, especially with Harriet Martineau, for example, she was a feminist, what we now call feminist kind of thinker, very interested in how, you know, women could feel, I mean, let's put it in modern parlance, you know, feel and be empowered. And she was linked with John Stuart Mill, who was pushing for suffrage. Um, but Nightingale, interestingly, you know, believed initially more in, again, something very practical, that, that actually being able to... Uh, have property rights and own property was more important to her initially than the vote, although she did eventually support the votes and complex kinds of views on, on, on that as well. So pulling together social science, epidemiology, kind of hygiene, hospital reform, the design and architecture of environments, the design and architecture of the, uh, of the physical environment army reform, theology, you know, her, her, her interests in theology were really fascinating because although she was brought up Anglican, she flirted with Catholicism. I mean, this was a time as well, remember, that the Anglican church itself was undergoing, you know, a series of uh, interdenominational kind of disputes, threats from the evangelical wing of the Protestant church, you know, convulsions within the established church itself. And she was at the, at the kind of epicentre of that as well, talking with Benjamin Jowett, who was Regis Professor of Greek uh, at Oxford and Master of Balliol College, about, you know, some of these deep theological kinds of issues. And she looked towards the medieval mystics, um, Teresa of Avila and others. She was very interested in um, Thomas Akempis's work, Imitatio Christi, Imitation of Christ. So, you know, she was, her head was full of all this stuff and all these different kind of strands of, of, of thought. Um, but I think the point I would, I would, you know, like to make that one of the motivating, I guess, the centripetal kind of principle was of change, was of reform. All of this was not for, you know, its own sake. What she was rebelling against, and she wrote this amazing um, novella called Cassandra, which, you know, in, in the 1850s, but it actually wasn't published until, you know, the 1910s in uh, a book called The Cause by Ray Strachey, who was the sister of Lytton Strachey, Lytton Strachey, who actually did a bit of a hatchet job on her, in his book, The Victorians, no pun intended with your no, name, no, Richard, no. Um, <clears throat> and uh, 
and actually Ray Strachey was a suffragist and saw the cause and as a kind of way to position suffrage at the turn, you know, the, tur the turn of the century. And as a kind of epilogue to that, published Cassandra, which was a sort of feminist rant against the enforced idleness of Victorian womanhood. And, you know, rather in the same way that Jane Austen was critiquing, you know, women's roles in society and marriage is one of the sort of primary destinations for women, the struggle to sort of carve out an independent intellectual and social purpose in life. I mean, Nightingale's very much, in, in a sense, the kind of nursing version of Jane Austen. That's how she knew Mrs. Gaskell, you know. So she was connected in a multiplicity of different ways and kind of drew in these sources of, of, of inspiration. Um, another really important thinker in her life was Adolf Ketterle, who was a Belgian statistician. He really influenced the way she, he, she thought about about numbers and about quantification, and we could we could discuss it because he invented the the notion of the mean of the average, and uh, that enabled you to to actually quantify differences and what we then. Uh, became the familiar kind of measure of standard deviation, you know, from the mean. So how different could you tell something was from a single point? And that was partly what she used in saying, you know, above or below the kind of average. That influenced her hugely in her, in her kind of thinking. So she had this amazing mind that was eclectic, you know, I mean, intelligent. She was so, in, you know, I think intellectually gifted. Um, but it was all for a social purpose. And, um, you know, what the way in which her, her social mission, if you like, intersects with, um, with, these other, with these other fields is what she was trying to get at and why she was so interested in, in statistics and perhaps it sounds a little bit alien to us to, today, is what she was after was these identifying the laws of nature. That was her coinage. And the laws of nature were the kind of rules and rhythms that were God-given. I mean, God had set a pattern for nature to imitate. And it was the, it was the job of the scientist to discover those rules and those laws and make them manifest so we could understand his glory essentially and that is what was really driving her interest in numbers because those mathematical and statistical relationships was what would be revealed through God's handiwork and that's the way that the rational side of mathematics and numbers comes together with sometimes this quite mystical view of, of, of theology. But pulling your question back to, um, you know, back to where, where she, she's relevant today, I, mean, I think she's relevant insofar as she situates nursing, you know, as this kind of, let's call it the sort of centripetal or centrifugal force, which is at the epicentre of all of these other types of fields. To understand nursing, we have to understand social science, behavioural sciences, you know, epidemiology, statistics, the demographics of a problem. 
we, we talk today about the importance of the physical and the psychological environment. We know from research that's been done on how hospitals are designed that they can have a positive impact on you know, patients' sense of isolation, their sense of feeling psychological safety, our capacity to you know, expose them to surveillance uh, is intimately impacted by how we design buildings. Um, and of course, the kind of military enterprise, what makes us healthy, the, the, the very intimate details of, of health and well-being. I mean, Notes in Nursing was written for the heads of households. It wasn't really a textbook on nursing and codifying practice in that way. But the people who'd be looking after the sick in their homes, which of course are lay people, not necessarily nurses. So she was spot on, you know, in the sense that actually that's still highly relevant to us today. And maybe there's a need for reviving something of that in the 21st century. Because most people who are involved in caring, you know, 4.6 million carers, are, are not the professionally trained nursing, nursing workforce or nursing staff um, per se, but actually, you know, it's the lay population. And that's where we're going to get the the great gains, I think, is how we mobilise professional expertise of our nursing staff in order to support the upskilling of the lay population. That's a very long answer. Mm. So I wondered, Anne-Marie, how um, Nightingale saw the character of the nurse, their role, how she conceptualised that, that concept yeah. of a nurse. I think I'll start with the role because the character, if you mean character as in the nature of the nurse, hmm. because she had particular views about character. Okay, and separate from role. Yes. Or at least... Quite specific on the character of a nurse being very important, and training was to, to train character. Right. Which again, you know, sorry, I guess the point I'm making earlier on is that Nightingale is essentially a Victorian and she has to be seen as a product of that broader culture. And she was insistent that training was of nurses was a form of character training. That's what training partly Did. was yeah. trying to do yeah. and accomplish. And that was an idea that was very much embedded in this I, this notion, if you like, about public service. And it was a product, really, of the public school movement in the 19th century. And again, there's a very interesting sort of gendered kind of element to this, too, because I think... And I, I haven't actually really seen much written about this in terms of you know, people have written about some of, like Cassandra that I spoke about earlier on, is an obvious feminist kind of piece of, of rhetoric and writing. But her views on gender are much, I think, much more complicated and probably bear analysis by someone who is much more au courant with gender studies than, than, than I actually am. But this is essentially a kind of male model, if you like, because it's the public school milieu was, of course, one, the forcing ground for men who would become public servants, work in the civil service, and run the country. 
and therefore character training in in that type of context and environment was very much about producing those virtues, those attributes that would serve you well in becoming a public servant and public spiritedness. And so really reform of nursing, and I argue this in my politics of, of nursing knowledge, which I would recommend as a very powerful sedative if you ever suffer from insomnia, um, would was actually about the reform of character. And it was partly about the kind of virtue script that became so so much a kind of recognisable feature of nursing training and nursing practice. You know, it was about training in a series of um, behaviours, if you like, you know, being patient, being tactful, um, and above all, regulating your emotions, what we'd now call emotional labour. But the idea, the template for her thinking on character training was really, this is what I argue anyway, um, because none of, all of us are operating in these broader environments and, and often we're not consciously aware of the, the forces that are acting upon us. Um, I, I think there is a case to be made for, for the civic kind of nature, and that's quite important as well, to the civic virtue of nursing because she was trying to deliver a secular view of nursing that was separate from the sisterhoods because, of course, before and alongside Nightingale, even though she herself was deeply religious, and I mean, this is a person who also, like the rest of us, had many contradictions in her own character. Um, you know, we tend to think about our... Um, icons as being, you know, quite black and white. Um, but of course, we're all much more complicated and so are our heroines and our heroes, etc. Of, of the past. But I think the point that I'm making is that this kind of template of personality and characteristics um, that, that was, it's almost like the hidden curriculum, the informal curriculum, of, of public school to develop civic virtue was kind of projected into the character of the nurse to make that person acceptable to the public because, of course, of the nature of the work that, at this point, she would undertake, given the intimacy of an engagement and interaction with 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 patients, so I mean, it was a very sort of subtle type of process. So she talked about training as character training, and that's what I think actually she she meant. She didn't elaborate up, you know, upon it in great detail, but that's what I, I've I've written about and argue in that in that book. Um, so it's aligning nursing very much with this broader civic and secular set of virtues and movement about public spiritedness and service as well. But it was also designed to kind of distance her vision of nursing from what had gone before and, and you know, the caricature of the Sarah Gamp and so forth that was used as the kind of battering ram uh, by reformers to 
essentially, again, posit the old with the new and set up this polarity and this dichotomy of the old Gamp, who was everything that the new nurse had to react against in order to promote this pristine um, vision of, of the virtuous nurse. Now, often that, that, that image was tied into a view of, of Christian womanhood as well. Um, but it, although it embraced this, these kind of civic and Christian virtues together, wrapped them into one, and intertw you know intertwined them. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that really Nightingale had a view that nurses needed uh, to be part of, of a kind of sisterhood, and that's that's probably another little track that we could go down. But her view essentially, if you could guarantee it, the character of the nurse, you could guarantee quality of care. So character became a kind of proxy for quality of of care, and her vision of nursing and um, was first and foremost, as she wrote in Notes in Nursing, was to put the patient in the best position for nature to work uh, upon him, again gendered. And that was really what she understood by nursing, was, was that the role of the nurse was to facilitate healing and recuperation by using what she had at her disposal to enable the patient's own constitution to be able to uh, support a pathway of recu recuperation. Because let's face it, there was not very much available to healthcare practitioners at the time. And I think that's by, by all the comfort measures that she defines and specifies so exquisitely in, in notes on nursing, how to use fresh air, all of the elements, how to make a patient comfortable, you know, how to offer them, keep them well nourished. All of those details of care and the attention to those little comforts she saw as the essence of high quality care. And why I think she possibly rejected medicine for as, as an endeavour, an undertaking for herself, because I think she saw that that's really where the gains were to be made in health, everyday health of patients. Because doctors came, they popped in and they popped out. You know, in the 19th century, as, of course, they're, they're kind of transient um, collaborators in care. It's the nurse who is the constant presence. I think she recognised that. So that's a rather long spiel on character, but it's quite an important point that I don't mm -hmm. think is often appreciated, mm -hmm. how being a product of, your, of a particular time moulds your thinking um, and then sets you on a particular kind of trajectory. But it's interesting about that contradictory element and, and that was actually one of my questions for you and because of time we, we won't expand on that but I picked up that, uh, you know, is she contradictory, is she dynamic? It, it's quite an interesting uh, point. I did note in the chapter and I, I don't think we've, we've really touched on this, we 
perhaps uh, discuss this broadly, but uh, in your chapter uh, towards the end of the uh, uh, the book on notes on Nightingale, you and Rosemary Wall say um, we continue to struggle with problems that, had we implemented a fraction of what she fought for, might not be with us today. I, I think y- you've kind of you may have even answered that, but I wondered. Uh, I thought that came across very powerfully, and possibly links to the final point with is she an icon, isn't she? Because I know in that chapter you beautifully argue, well, she might be, she might not be, because an icon, surely an icon is somebody who is able to influence and move things forward. And you're kind of saying we still have a lot of those problems. So I'm, I'm throwing a difficult one at you, which is commenting on that quote and possibly linking it to the fact, well, maybe she's not an icon, maybe she's an icon. What is an icon? Well, I, I maybe taking your first point about, you know, what what is the, um, what are, you know, if we had been able to, and I mean, she did make huge changes, I think, sure. um, and was very influential, there's no doubt about that, in, you know, standardising hospital statistics, etc., and that set a whole kind of benchmarking um, genre of activity, series of activities. But, of course, it's never in, in train. And international congresses were part of that in the 19th century to begin standardising the way we collect and use data. But as anyone who's done comparative work across health systems will know, that's still not a perfect kind of science it's more of an it's also partly an art form um but i think the thing that strikes me about perhaps one of the most obvious aspects of her practices in hygiene and you know her views about the use of the elements to to keep patients safe and the the return if you like of hygiene as a major defense against infection i think just demonstrates how how prescient she actually was. And, but we know about hand hygiene, it's you know, imperfectly implemented, and that's a cause of lots of different consequences, one of which is M- MRSA and antimicrobial resistance. So I, I think you can see that the need for determined and dedicated action in that regard is as, is as great as ever. And I mean, antimicrobial resistance is a scourge and it's set to be one of the leading causes of global mortality by 2050. So, you know, in the sense, the kind of clocks come full circle because why was that? Well, we started to perhaps relax when we developed sulfonamides and antibiotics, even though it was recognised in the 50s that antimicrobial resistance was a, a, a possible problem. But again, being slow to react and find even more, you know, diverse kind of um, ways to, to tackle problems and to the point where, you know, the previous chief medical officer, uh, Dame Sally Davis, written on and very articulated, been an eloquent uh, exponent of this, but she's now the UN envoy on antimicrobial resistance, I think. Um, you know, a real crusader for the cause that we haven't invested in developing new antibiotics for reasons of drug policy. Um, it hasn't 
repaid investment for various reasons. So we're now, you know, we, we and to some extent, AMR is a kind of natural consequence of underinvestment in previous decades. And now we're paying the price. Um, so it's a real threat, actually, to health systems globally, especially with, you know, the mobility that we have with populations and the ways in which, as we've seen with Ebola and SARS and many other cholera, even still prevalent in a Democratic Republic of Congo and, and out, these outbreaks that happen demonstrate how, you know, these bugs are lying in waiting for the opportunity just to to rise up again. And, um, yeah, they reveal all sorts of vulnerabilities in, and fault lines in our society. So there's no opportunity to take the foot off the gas and, and relent in our in our efforts. So I think her teachings on hygiene is what I'm saying are, are as relevant today and that's I think a quite a potent example of where she was spot on. So thinking about that then, she is an icon, isn't she? Because it's not her fault <laughs> 200 years later uh, because she, she was coming up with the answers. It's our responsibility to find a way forward to take those forward. So I'm just thinking of the, the final point about is she an icon? Surely she is an icon. Um, well, I mean, I, I think this is... A, and is that important? Well, it's a, a sort of yeah. point of yeah, yeah. contestation, isn't it? Uh, I only say not- it because, because the title of your book is... Um, uh, you know, got the got the the title of a legacy of a nursing icon. So I suppose it, it was appropriate to say. Yeah, but know. I think the title of that chapter that uh, Rosemary true, now true, Creswell, true, not true. Wall, and true. I and I wrote was is she an icon or an iconoclast? Yes, true. Um, and and actually, she's both, isn't she? In a sense, I mean, people don't self-nominate to become icons, <laughs> do no, they? No, no, you no. know, uh, I mean, I, I know people today do say, you know, yes, I, I'm a celebrity or whatever. But I mean, she was a celebrity in her own day. I mean, she was probably second to Queen Victoria, the best-known woman. Mm. She was a global star. Her star power was unparalleled. You know, um, quite extraordinarily, as we saw in the bricks. I mean, that was part of her her fame. Mm. Meant that these were sought after across the world, even the material culture. You know, and in that sense, you know, um, it was a bit like being that having a kind of reliquary that that you would associate more with Catholic saints, um, and you know, bits of bone and hair and so forth, etc. So. Very, very interesting uh, the way people become, uh, you know, the, the iconic images. People become turned and transformed into these uh, these icons, and that says more about the people, the audience at the time themselves, and what they're questing and for, and what they're 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 searching and and appetite and need. Actually, what need is that and purpose is that fulfilling in, in, in society and I mean it has been argued by um, I, I don't think we said this at the time but certainly a military historian Andrew Lambert uh, also from King's who basically I think suggested that one of the reasons that, that Nightingale became so well known was because the Crimean War was a disaster for the British government, you know, not just in terms of the mortality 
of, of soldiers and the chaos that reigned in Scutari and beyond. Um, but because there was no obvious military hero, you know, there was no Wellington, there was no Nelson. So she became this kind of shimmering image of the saviour, actually, a national symbol that everyone looked to rebuild kind of pride in the nation. So she had this broader political kind of function that means, again, to see her in solely nursing uh, terms is to really miss the point that she was a much larger figure um, who radiated her kind of, you know, influence beyond nursing into these other um, other domains that we've already d d discussed. But she was also a rebel. She was also a critic. And by golly, if you got on the, you know, receiving end of her whiplash tongue, you would be, uh, you know, reduced to a quivering wreck, I dare say. You didn't want to be on her bad side. She was very generous and sweet and mentored lots of her protégés. But if she took a guinea, you would be frozen out. And boy, that would be probably the equivalent of experiencing a form of hell on earth. Um, so, again, you know, she was a contradictory character. But she was very critical and probably no more so than with herself. She was her own best and possibly worst, worst critic too. She was very self-critical, I think. So, you know, but that challenging authority is what I think we can also take away today, speaking out, escalating concerns. And that's an essential part of patient safety. So I think that gritty side of her personality and saying, you know what? No, I'm not doing that. That's not actually acceptable. Um, and standing up for and standing up to, be it bullying, harassment, etc., and standing up for patients and taking stands on standards, that's what it has to be all about. That advocacy role for reform and changing for the better and making a difference in this world is what she symbolised, I think, ultimately, above all else. Professor Anne-Marie Rafferty, always good to spend time with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Thanks very much for that, Richard. I hope people learn something new. I hope so. Absolutely. Well, as always, you can catch up on previous podcast episodes and see some of the resources connected with the show at rcni.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.